Amen. Would you pray with me once again? Father, we long to be happy in Jesus this morning. We know that our only hope of happiness in Christ Jesus is to trust that the promises that you have given us in him are good and trustworthy and lasting and eternal. And that the obedience that flows out of our trust in Jesus is sweet and good for our souls. We need your word this morning to nourish us and teach us to trust and obey our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I ask this morning that you would meet us with your kindness in your word as we seek to understand how to live wisely in the day of adversity. Would you nourish our souls and would you build our faith? We pray. Amen. Amen, friends. If you've got a Bible this morning, go ahead and open it up actually to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We are continuing our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes and we are halfway there today. Believe it or not, there are 222 poetic verses in Ecclesiastes. And the preacher himself divides the book exactly in half. We have read and studied and thought about 111 verses. And we will read and study about another 111. Not all today, of course. The preacher divides his book in two because in the middle of his book, he makes a shift in his focus. See, so far in Ecclesiastes, the preacher has been making observations of life under the sun. This I saw, this I saw, this I beheld. What does it look like to live in the ruins of Eden? And he's been asking this question over and over again. It's the question that he first asks in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3. Remember this question from the beginning of our series? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Ecclesiastes 1, 3. What gain is there to be found by all the work that we do under the sun? And as the preacher makes these observations of the world around him, he learns this truth that he first exposes in Ecclesiastes 1.14. He says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind, or all is hevel, all is frustratingly mysterious and a striving after after when all of our efforts to work hard and get the gain we think we need and want out of this world are ultimately fruitless because they're striving after wind. They're going after something that God has not put in this world. The preacher over and over observes, what if I try this path? What if I try that path? What if I try the path of pleasure or the path of wisdom? Will I be able to find gain? And over and over the answer is, all is hevel and a striving after when this refrain is actually repeated seven times in this first half of Ecclesiastes. If you follow it all the way to the last time it's said in this book, you get to Ecclesiastes chapter six, verse nine, which is where we ended last week. Ecclesiastes chapter six, verse nine, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. That's the last time this phrase appears in Ecclesiastes, which is another pointer that the preacher is dividing his book in half and shifting his focus. 
starting with our text today and going on through the end of the book, the preacher shifts his focus from where can I find this gain that I seek under the sun? Can I work hard and get it? To what now that I know I can't get it? What now knowing that this gain cannot be found under the sun? What do we do with that? The preacher is going to explore that topic through two key questions. We see in verse 12 of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 12. He asks two questions. For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? And then the second question. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? In other words, the preacher is saying that since we can't find the gain we want... In this earth, the only option is to treat the things of the earth as gift and not gain. How do we live now in light of that? Who can tell us what's good to do in light of that? The answer is obviously God, right? But what is good to do? What do we do with that? And who can tell us what will come after? The answer is obviously God, right? These are the implied answers to these questions, but the preacher is going to unpack that by exploring these questions. He's going to lead all the way up to the ultimate and final answer to these questions. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes 12. The end of the book. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 to 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In other words, what is good? Fear God and keep his commandments. Who can tell us what will come after? What comes next? God will bring every deed into judgment, whether good or evil. In the midst of trials, fear God and keep his commandments, knowing that he will both judge the wicked and he will reward the righteous. That's the preacher's conclusions to this. How do we live wisely in light of All of our toil under the sun being nothing but striving for wind. So he's going to unpack that and think about that all the way through this next section. He's going to start this morning and where our focus is going to be this morning by talking about how do we live wisely in the day of adversity? How do we live wisely in the day of adversity? I'm going to read this text in a moment. And when I do, we'll see the preacher talk about things like a funeral and going to the house of mourning. And thinking about the day of death being better than the day of birth. He's kind of got a negative spin on things right now. He's going to talk in verses 9 and 10 about being quick to become angry. And longing for the days that are past. And then in verse 13 of chapter 7, he's going to talk about this crook in our lot. Or the bend in the road that we don't want and don't desire but can't do anything about. In verse 14 of chapter 7. He says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. He's comparing the two, prosperity and adversity. But all the way through, he's really focusing on how to handle the day of adversity. So that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. How do we live wisely in the day of adversity? We need this this morning because we are tempted On the day of adversity, when trials come, when sorrows come, it is our natural inclination and temptation to try to hide from them or try to cover them up or try to be uh, change them. And when we can't become angry and frustrated, 
We need to know how to live wisely in the day of adversity because the day of adversity will come. What we're going to see the preachers tell us in Ecclesiastes here is that in the day of adversity, we must trust God by living in accordance with the times. That's the preacher's main point today, and that's my main point too. In the day of adversity, when these trials come, we must trust God by living in accordance with the times. What I mean by that is we see in Ecclesiastes 3 that God sets the times, right? There's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to weep and a time to rejoice. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to be comforted. There's a time for war and there's a time for peace. All of these over and over, the preacher compares these two and says, God himself is Lord over all of the time. And so if God himself brings the day of adversity to you, what you must do is you must trust God by living in accordance with the times he's brought you. What that means is that we wisely look like the preacher does for the relative good in the day of adversity. All the way through, the preacher's talking better, 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 better. He's looking at the relative good in the day of adversity, what God is doing in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of tribulations. This is different from the world's relative good, right? This is different from the Minnesota response to suffering, which is, well, it could be worse. That's not what the preacher is talking about. He's not saying relative to other people. He's saying, look for the good that God is accomplishing in the midst of the day of adversity in you and in his people more broadly. That's what we're going to look for this morning. We need this this morning because the day of adversity is a normal occurrence living in the ruins of Eden. We live in the ruins of Eden, not in Eden itself. And so because we have destroyed the garden and now live in the wilderness... Days of adversity will come. Paul tells the churches, as he goes around strengthening them and comforting them, he says, through many tribulations you will enter the kingdom of God. We know that the day of adversity will come because all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But we also know the day of adversity will come because you can store up treasures and they can be taken away from you instantly by all kinds of natural disasters. They can be taken away from you instantly by all kinds of evil. Whatever you put your trust and hope in, aside from God, is not solid in this life. And the day of adversity will come when that gain that you think you had is tested and ultimately found to be wanting. We need this this morning because there are many in our body who are suffering in the midst of the day of adversity. This week was heavy for me because of carrying burdens with you of your suffering and also because of carrying burdens of suffering in other brothers and sisters in churches that we are associated with there are some that are really struggling with conflict among the leadership and some that are struggling with conflict among the congregation and some that look like they might close and my heart is heavy with how to deal with that i need this morning the words of the preacher, and I'm sure that you do too. Even if you're not in the day of adversity, friends, the day of adversity will come. And so listen with ears to hear the wisdom of the preacher. Let's listen to him now. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 10 through chapter 7, verse 14. Hear the wisdom of the preacher. Whatever has come to be has already been named, 
And it is known what man is, that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. As we work through the preacher's wise words, we're going to see three better thens that kind of govern what he's saying. We're going to see in verses 1 to 4 that it is good or better to go to the house of mourning. And we're going to explore what that means. And then we're going to see in verses 5 through 6 that it is good or better To hear the rebuke of the wise. And then we're going to see in verses 7 to 10 that it is good or better to wait patiently on the Lord. And then we're going to hear his final exhortation to us, which is to consider the work of God. We're going to take those one at a time, friends. First, in in chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, it is good to go to the house of mourning. We see in verses 1 through 4, the preacher laying out this funeral scene, right? In verse 2, he says it's good to go to the house of mourning. And he says the reason that it's good is that it's the end of all mankind. And what did he just mention in verse 1? He just mentioned death, didn't he? The day of death is better than the day of birth. He's talking about a funeral scene where mourning and sorrow and sadness are normal. And he's saying... That is better to be here in the day of adversity. This is counterintuitive to us, isn't it? Which would you prefer, to go to the house of mourning or to go to the house of feasting? I can tell you which one I would like. I like being at the feasting every time. But the preacher is saying it is wise to go to the house of mourning. We see that we need this wisdom in our own Changes that have been brought about in the last century even in funeral practices in our country, right? 
We no longer go to the house of mourning very easily when we go to funerals. Instead, our loved ones die not surrounded by family at home, but in an ICU surrounded by IV bags. And they die not necessarily laying there in state then in our house with opportunity for us to reflect on the fact that they're dead, but they die and are taken away by a mortician and beautified for the funeral. And then we have a funeral, but it's not a funeral. It's a celebration of life. And then we talk about them not as mom or dad or brother or sister who's now dead, but we talk about them as the departed or the deceased. We use metaphors. We do not mention death at a funeral. And we talk about them having gone on to a better place, skipping right over the mourning that they are dead and that this death is a tragedy. We live in a society that doesn't know how to go to the house of mourning and we ourselves struggle to go to the house of mourning because we'd much rather feast and be happy, right? But we all know that it is inappropriate to laugh at a funeral. It is not in accord with the times that God has brought about, is it? Ecclesiastes 3 Verse 4 says that there are times to mourn, right? Ecclesiastes 3 verse 4, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. When God has brought the time to mourn, what do the wise do? They mourn, right? When it is time to weep, what do the wise do? They weep. They go to the house of mourning. And they lean towards or embrace the sadness. Friends, I want you to hear that this morning. I think we need to hear that. As believers in Christ, that death is a tragedy. And being sad about that is good and wise. It does not mean that you do not trust in the sovereignty of God. Sometimes, because we know that we grieve as those We do not grieve as those without hope, but we grieve as those with hope in Christ. Sometimes we can think that means we don't grieve. That we don't go to the house of mourning. We don't draw near to the sadness and sorrow. Because we know that there is eternal life. And that those who die in Christ are with him. But the preacher says it is wise to go to the house of mourning when the time of mourning is upon us. It is not a rejection of God's sovereignty. The preacher holds that God brings about the day of prosperity and the day of adversity in verse 14. Our sadness does not ignore Christ's triumph. Remember him at the funeral of Lazarus. He weeps. He's angry at death and he's on the march to defeat death. But he's still goes to the house of mourning when it's time to mourn. He still draws near to sorrow when it's time to be sorrowful. This is not just talking about death. The preacher is using a funeral to help us draw this conclusion that there are times of sorrow in the Christian life and embracing those times of sorrow is wise. Why is it wise? Why is sorrow, verse 3, why is sorrow better than laughter? What does it do that makes it better? Friends, sorrow and the house of mourning in the time of sadness and mourning 
is meant to calibrate our hearts. Look what he says in chapter 7, verse 2, at the end of it. This is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. All throughout this poetic chapter, there's language of the heart and how living in accordance with the times, living wisely, doing what is better, like going to the house of mourning, affects our hearts. See, going to the house of mourning, embracing sorrow and sadness when it's time to embrace sorrow and sadness, calibrates our hearts in a couple ways. It helps us, first of all, face reality. Learning the lesson from death that you will eventually die is vital to the Christian life. If you think you will never die, the hope and promises that Jesus offers are empty sounding. Because you don't need them. This life is fine. If you think that you will never die and you live under that assumption, you won't value what's truly valuable. And that's what the preacher wants us to do. Notice in verse 1, he says, A good name is better than precious ointment. Or a reputation of faithfulness is better than the wealth represented by precious ointment. The only way you learn that lesson is if you realize that nothing you have will last. Right? Everything is striving after wind. And eventually naked you came and naked you will go. If you learn that lesson from death, you will learn that it's better to have a good name than precious ointment. We learn to have our hearts calibrated to face reality and learn what's truly valuable. And we also learn, when we draw near to to sorrow, to cultivate a longing for our true home. You see, we live in a place where death is a reality, but that's not where we were created to live. We were not, believe it or not, created to die. It is not natural that human beings die. It is unnatural, a terrible miracle that you and I die. Because we were created to live forever with God. And the fact that you and I die keys us in that this is not our home. The fact that we have sorrow and times of adversity keys us in that this is not the garden we long for. That we are not in the new heavens and the new earth, but that we are waiting for our true home. It is better to go to the house of mourning because it cultivates our longing for our true home. Not only that, but it's better to go to the house of mourning because it it enables us, as we draw near to sorrow, to have that sorrow give way to true and lasting joy. It gives way to true and lasting joy. Jesus promises this in Matthew 5. When he says, blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they will be comforted. This is the trajectory always, right? Weeping may tarry for a night, but joy comes in the morning. This is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians. Listen to how this works in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of what? The God of all comfort. Who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. God works in the hearts of his people 
To bring them the comfort of Christ and enable them to extend that out to one another. And as we do that with one another, we're filled with joy and hope. Paul goes on a little bit later to say all the afflictions he experienced, all the days of adversity he experienced were to make him hope not in himself, but in God who raises the dead. In the comfort and promises and assurance that God provides, the true joy that lasts. That isn't the joy found in the house of mirth. That's a false joy that's covering up sadness, but it's a true and lasting joy. It is good, then the preacher says, to go to the house of mourning when it's time to mourn. Not only that, but he says it's good to hear the rebuke of the wise. It's good to hear the rebuke of the wise. Verses 5 and 6, he says, It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to listen to the song of fools. But which would you rather hear? A rebuke or a song? I can tell you that I'd rather hear a song. Songs are more comforting, right? Songs are more cheerful. Songs are soothing, especially when we're hurting. We think what we need is comfort of the kind that the fools offer. But it is just that foolish comfort. It's foolish comfort because the song of fools, instead of wisely thinking about the circumstances, the song of fools blames God for the trouble. This is what Job's wife does when Job is struck down with all kinds of tragedy. His family is killed. His livestock are destroyed. And he himself has boils and is scraping them off his skin. His wife says this in Job 2. His wife says this, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Curse God and die. That's the song of the fools, friends. That's the song that blames God for the circumstances that you're in and says they are bad and God is doing wickedness to you. Job did not blame God for wickedness. His wife did. Fools who sing soothing songs ignore the timing of God. They don't believe that God is at work in sadness and sorrow, in mourning. In suffering. They say instead things like, You don't deserve this. They ignore God's timing and they ignore the wisdom that calls us to go to the house of mourning. And they say, Don't don't be sad. Things will turn around. Often we can end up offering the song of fools when we offer platitudes and not God's promises. We offer things like God won't give you more than you can handle. But it's really an empty platitude. It's not the promises of God that God will give you more than you can handle, but that God himself will sustain you in the midst of suffering. Do not listen to the song of fools, the preacher says, but instead hear the rebuke of the wise. The rebuke of the wise considers that these are the works of God, right? Verses 13 and 14, consider the works of God. The rebuke of the wise points instead to God's promises that says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We can be sure of that because Jesus said it to us. 
The rebuke of the wise believes that God always intends good to us in the midst of whatever suffering he brings. This is what James says. This is what the voice of the wise sounds like in the midst of the day of adversity. James chapter 1 verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy when trials come because God is perfecting you into the image of his son, Christ Jesus. This is what the rebuke of the wise sounds like. Why is it better? Why is it better to hear harsh sounding words like that? Why is it better to preach to our own soul? Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Why is it better? Because we know that there's a way that seems right to us, and yet it's a way that leads to death. It's Proverbs 14, verse 12. There's a way that seems right in our hearts, but it's foolish, and it leads to death. Foolishness always in Scripture leads to death. Leads to destruction. Leads to despair. Wisdom, on the other hand, the preacher says, the words of the wise are like goads that are pointing us to something. He says here in verses 10, excuse me, verses 11 and 12, right? That wisdom itself preserves the life of him who has it. Learning to be wise, learning to wisely respond to these circumstances actually preserves us. This is what Jesus is getting at when he talks about the one who does his words and the one who doesn't. Listen to what he says in Matthew. This is Matthew chapter 7. Verses 24 to 27. Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Everyone who listens to the song of fools will be like that man who doesn't do the words of Christ and so built his house on the sand and it gets knocked right down. Everyone who hears the rebuke of the wise in the day of adversity and is reminded to trust in God's promises and do what Jesus said to do will be like the wise man whose house stands. It is good to go and hear the rebuke of the wise Because the rebuke of the wise leads to life. In the day of adversity, God is teaching us to distinguish between wisdom and folly. Between the song of the fool and the words of the wise. And he does that by giving us practice often. But it leads to life. So it is good to go to the house of mourning in the day of adversity. And it is good to hear the rebuke of the wise in the day of adversity. And in the day of adversity, it is good to wait patiently. It is good to wait patiently. Verses 7 to 10, 
Surely the oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. The foolish person in the day of adversity becomes proud in spirit and complains to the Lord. The proud are impatient in the present, right? This is why in verse 9, the preacher says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry. What happens when you encounter the day of adversity, when you encounter suffering and sadness and sorrow that you don't think you deserve, how do you respond? I can tell you how I respond. I don't like it. I don't think it's right. I become irritated, short with my family. I become maybe a little bitter at God. Why, Lord? Why now? Right? In the day of adversity, we are tempted to be proud and become impatient with the present and respond with anger and bitterness. That is foolish, the preacher says. We're also tempted in our pride to look back at how things were and say it was so much better back then. Right? If we've moved into the day of adversity and it was going really good and all of a sudden it's going really bad... We're tempted to look longingly back at the past and say, man, if we could just go back and have a do-over. The preacher says in verse 10, this is foolish. Say not, why were the former days better than these? It's not from wisdom that you ask this. It's not wise to long for the past. It's also not wise to become pessimistic towards the future. When we meet the day of adversity, if we are proud... We will say, this is what God has always been like, and this is what he always will be like, and he doesn't care about me. We will refuse to believe what the preacher says in verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. We will refuse to believe that promise, and we will instead try to secure our own future by doing things like he talks about in verse 7, oppressing others, bribing others, which rots away at our hearts, the preacher says. The anger that comes from pride lodges in our hearts, he says in verse 9. And our hearts become corrupted. Instead, the preacher says, we must learn to be patient. We must learn to be patient in the day of adversity. This is a lesson that God's people struggled to learn. In the wilderness, Israel did not respond with patience. As they wandered around the wilderness waiting to be brought to the promised land... What did they do? Numbers 11, verses 4 to 6. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. In the day of adversity, God's people sat there complaining, longing for the day they were in slavery. They had free food to eat, but they worked all the time for it. And finding the food that God provided miraculously in the midst of the wilderness as undesirable, as rotten. Their pride and their refusal to be patient and wait on the Lord destroyed their enjoyment of God's goodness. See, patience 
in the midst of adversity is better because it exposes an opportunity for us to experience God's care in the midst of adversity. While we wait in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials, we experience God's good care. We experience the promise that all those who wait on him will renew their strength. Because God himself will renew them. We experience the promise that God will give manna for us, even in the wilderness, and feed us with what is needful. While we wait on the Lord, we have room to experience that. When we proudly grow impatient and refuse to wait, all of that tastes bitter to us. Not only that, though, friends, it is good to be patient in the day of adversity to wait on the Lord. Because when we wait, we have time to consider that the end that we're headed towards truly is better than the beginning. This is so important. Don't miss that. As the preacher says in verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Think about God's people in the midst of their slavery. They're longing to go back to the beginning, which is not even the beginning of God's people, but it's the beginning that they're thinking about, longing for, thinking it's better. But they don't trust that God is bringing them into a land flowing with milk and honey full of houses that they didn't build and vineyards that they didn't plant. It is better. And they don't believe it because they're not waiting patiently. Think about God's people waiting through years of adversity and years of silence while they waited for the promise of the Messiah. And what does Galatians tell us? That when the fullness of time had come, God brought forth his son. This promise, this precious promise that the end is better than the beginning and worth waiting for. You don't experience that unless you wait. Or think about the disciples who waited. After Jesus was killed and buried in the tomb, they waited longing for something to happen. And three days later it did, right? Christ rose from the grave and even then they had trouble believing it. And as they stood in a room with doors locked because they were afraid of the Jews, John tells us that Jesus appeared among them and declared, peace be with you, and showed him his hands and the hole inside. The end was better than the beginning and it was worth waiting for. If they did, imagine how foolish they felt if they grew proud and impatient in those three days while Christ was in the tomb. Friends, the end is always better than the beginning and always worth waiting for. The end that we are longing for will be worth waiting for, regardless of whatever suffering and sorrow you are experiencing right now. Whatever day of adversity comes your way, the end is better. Revelation 21, the end is New Jerusalem descending down and God dwelling with his people and wiping away every tear from every eye. There will be no more house of mourning to go to when Jesus returns. That's what we long for. And you experience that longing and you get to consider as you wait in the day of adversity that that really is truly better. Would you rather go back to Eden? Many of us might say yes in the midst of our adversity, but we would be wrong. We would be foolish. The beginning is not better than the end. The end we long for is even better than Eden. To reference a book that a few of you are reading. It's very true. 
The end is even better than Eden. We would not long to go back to Eden. Instead, we long for the new heavens and the new earth. Friends, we do this. We learn to do this. We learn to live wisely this way, going to the house of mourning. And we learn to live wisely this way by hearing the rebuke of the wise and by waiting with patience. We do this by considering the work of God. Verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In the day of adversity, God has made crooked what you would long to be straight. And the reality is that God himself is working in that day of adversity for your good. We must consider the work of God. He is the one that brings the crook into our lot. He is the one that makes crooked what we wish would be straight. He is the one that is working for our good. We don't want the crook in our lot that he brings, right? But we want and need the good that he intends. He does it in a way, the preacher says, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In other words, he does it in a way so that you can't say, well, this trial, I see the good that you're going to bring, so that's okay. He does it in a way that requires faith, requires trust in his promises. He does it in a way that requires us to consider his works and learn to trust because we don't know what will come next. But considering that he's the one that does it enables us to actually go to the house of mourning. It enables us to actually listen with ears to hear to the rebuke of the wise. And it enables us to wait patiently and with faith. It enables us to respond like Job does, right? This is where we all want to be when the day of adversity strikes, when everything is wiped out. We want to respond like Job. Job chapter 1, verse 20 to 21. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us daily consider that each day we receive, whether it's a day of prosperity or a day of adversity is from you, from your hand. Each day we come needing grace for that day and each day you meet us with manna. I pray that you would help us to learn to trust that and learn to say with Job that whether you give or take away, blessed be your name. We desperately need your spirit to help us live wisely in these days. And so I pray that you would do that for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.